Hi guys, it's Andian. Thanks today for downloading or streaming yet another episode of Spoken Label. As you may or may not be aware, Spoken Label was started in the beginning of 2006, and currently we have well over 150 sessions recorded and sent. Although you can find it on various networks, the full archive is available for streaming and downloading at Spoken label full stop bandcamp.com. It is a free download or free stream in there, but obviously, if you feel like chucking me a few pennies that way, it'd be eternally grateful to help me keep this podcast going and keep improving my equipment, etc. Enjoy, speak to you soon. Bye bye. Spoken label, yeah, spoken label back in the house. On a lovely Easter Sunday as well. It's been glorious today. And we're on Zoom, of course, but quite local today because I've got a writer over in Stated Bridge. And Stated Bridge is very near to where where I live. So, And I was talking to this lady because she got in touch with me relatively recently. And I did a feature with her on Sunday Tribune. Not Sunday Tribune, Sunday Chronicle, I should say. My, uh, my obviously, art magazine I write for. And, and we had got that much good to chat. I want to talk to her today about her novel. So, Kat, would you like to introduce yourself to everybody? Tell them who you are. Obviously, where you Richard come from, where you are now, and what start off your writing. We'll start there. Yeah. So, yeah, hi, I'm Kat Lum. It's uh, great to be on Spoken Label. Thanks for the invite, Andy. Um, I'm originally from Huddersfield, so officially the wrong side of the hill, um, but currently live in Staley Bridge. I um, started writing very, at a very young age, as a lot of writers say, Um, But then I kind of stopped because I got very much into career mode in in my 20s and I was focused very much on um, the degree that I did, which was in Egyptology and anthropology. So I learned how to read ancient hieroglyphs and things like that. Um, And then um, went into a museum career as a museum educator um, in Manchester and absolutely loved it. But then I became quite ill. Um, I got a viral infection that I never really recovered from. And I think a lot of people at the moment with COVID going around with the idea of long COVID, that's basically what I got But back in the day. Um, so that was in 2008, nine, And uh, because I was so tired and I couldn't really leave the house, I was housebound for a number of months. The only thing that I could really do is use my imagination and so I got back into writing through that. And because then I could only work part time for a long time, I worked part time and did my writing part time as well until um, last year in the midst of the pandemic. I decided to leave my museum educator job and take up my dream of being a writer full time, along with starting a business as a writing coach, which has been so much fun. Give him respect for this one straight away, because that's a any chance any writer that obviously goes to do the work full time is a is take a big gamble and respect you showing the courage to do it. But to go and do it in the middle of lockdown as well, that makes it even more courageous. Yeah, it was um it was kind of it felt like an inevitable step really, because um I was very fortunate that the um place where I worked asked for voluntary severance and because I'd been there almost 13 years, it was quite a nice payout, should we say. So I've kind of got the the luxury of knowing that I've got some savings sort of behind me. So it's, um, it's, it wasn't too scary, but it felt like the right thing to do at the right time. 
Yeah, yeah, of course. I think you do. Sometimes you get some stages, some jobs like that. You think if you don't do it now, you're never going to do it. Yeah, I know what you exactly. mean that because it's. I think the way it's looking, my day job will probably end up doing what your job's going to do some point on the line in the future. And I've been at mine for quite some time now, so it's not a case of counting down the days to it, but you know what you mean. Sometimes it's, it's what's right for you at the time. Now, yeah. we're going to talk about your writing in a minute, but I know, first of all, you're doing, obviously, you've got a project at the moment called The Right Catalyst, haven't you? So tell people about that then and where the idea for this came from. So, yeah, so The Right Catalyst is my writing coach um, name, shall we say, and I help uh, some new writers or writers who are struggling try and finish their novels or um, edit their books, be it fiction or non-fiction, uh, because I found when I was struggling with my writing, and I was at that stage where I was producing quite a lot, but not really finishing anything. Um, you know, you go through that whole mindset thing of you're not good enough, you're an imposter and all of those things. One of the things I found really useful is I found a productivity coach. And that productivity coach basically changed my life because I found an amazing amount of confidence um, to be able to finish what I started. And that was one of the reasons why I first published my short story collection. And so I want to be able to do that for other writers. And obviously with being a museum educator, I've done workshops for young people and things like that. So I do now do a monthly webinar um, on different writing topics like how to keep motivated or look at story structure. Um, I do workshops for literature festivals and things like that. And I also do some one-on-one -on -one coaching to keep people accountable and encourage them with their writing dreams. Because if I can do it, if I can set up my plotting shed in my garden and publish my books and get readers and great reviews, then I don't see why anyone else can't do it. Yeah, exactly. Now, now tell people about the plotting shed, first of all, because I think this is quite interesting what you do here. And I think it sums you up as a person, really, in a nice way, of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yes, the plotting shed is where I now do all of my uh, writing and my writing work. Um, it was something that we came to visit the house where we live um, on a viewing just over three years ago. Uh, it might be coming up to four now, actually. And next door, and the neighbour in the back garden had a potting shed. And we were stood in the uh, the back bedroom and we were like, actually, this is the house for us. This is this is where we want to live. And we, it was one of those feelings you get when you go into a house. Um, and my partner just looked and said, oh, he's got a potting shed. How about we build you a plotting shed? And a dream was born. Um, and so when I left my job last year, um, I used some of the money to invest in that dream and sort of it was kind of a gift to say this is going to happen. You're going to need this plotting shed. It was a, a demonstration of a belief that I could do it and that I will do it. So now I have my little plotting shed with some very expensive wallpaper um, <laughs> in to make me feel wonderful. And uh, yeah, I absolutely love going there every single day to do some work. Um, and it's just such a cozy place. And obviously there's a dog bed for the dog to watch the squirrels as well. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Now, um, okay, when you set up the plotting shed, you do your creative stuff in there. Do you find in when you actually leave the plotting shed and go back inside your house, do you find like sometimes you're still chomping at the heels to write when you're in home or do you manage to shut down when you're back inside your house? It's interesting because I've, because with being, um, with having two chronic illnesses with ME mm. and fibromyalgia, I've had to put a lot of boundaries in place. Um, yeah, and when away, I was, yeah. yeah, straight away. So 
I used to be able to be quite good at separating my work at the museum from my writing work at home. Um, but when we started working from home in the pandemic, it demonstrated to me just how how much the stress from like going to work um, really impacted me. And that was one of the reasons behind making the decision to leave because I was so much healthier not having to go to work. Um, with the plotting shed, it's a place where I can go and I kind of, my brain now knows, it's like inviting my muse to step into the plotting shed and that's where I spend time with her. Um, so when I do leave the plotting shed and come back in the house, usually I'm able to leave it in the plotting shed. Of course, there are still those moments, you know, in the shower, filling the dishwasher, all those things where you're like, oh, I must remember that, I must note that down so I can <laughs> pick it back up again. Because I think as writers, we never, ever leave that those moments of inspiration behind. Um, and I do a lot of um, walking with the dog as well. So that's a lot of sort of ruminating time to, to think over plots and stories and things like that. I know, I know. When I go out walking a lot, I've always got a little notepad in the back of my pocket or inside my man bag. And I'm walking, you'll find me, I'll go out and I can stood there for a minute thinking, heck, where's the bench? I sit down, scribble this down and <laughs> you do it. Oh, I found that um, the note app on my phone, but then I've got um, one that records. So actually you'll find me walking around the country park sort of talking about how to kill a character into my phone. <laughs> Oh, you've got a great my partner, Amanda, because when Amanda was doing her last uh, office-based jobs work in the factory a couple of a bit back, and she's always telling me she wrote. I know she wrote a novel or the best part of a novel during the couple months she was there, going to work from work and doing it in the lunchtime as well. And it's mm-hmm. like that was by typing it, writing on the phone. And I'm just an old-fashioned note notepad guy. Yeah, I do like um, notepad for sort of sketching out actually one of the walls of the plotting shed is a blackboard the whole wall so oh, I yeah. can literally plot my books on my plotting shed wall um <laughs> and it's great that's brilliant no, so I think it's the way you do it is that, that I think there's no set wrong or right way when you're doing your writing like that so I don't care black and good but you said that board like that it's brilliant you just scribble ideas down there look at them when you're writing thinking yeah thinking oh that wouldn't work that would work and etc so yeah now yeah we're here today to really talk about two, your two books you bought on to date. And I know you've got other things in gold, but we'll come on to that in a minute. Now, first of all, um, I want to talk about your short story book, which came out in 2018. The, is it Memorial Tree and other short stories? Yeah, the, other memo- the Memorial Tree and other short stories, yes. Yeah. So the Memorial Tree was um, a story that I entered into... Um, a competition at work actually and it came second in the culture shots um oh. writing competition so it was um thank you it was um <laughs> actually um read out at the manchester eye hospital um by an actor um, and also at the manchester museum as well um and there was something about that story that always stayed with me and so the memorial tree starts with the, the title story but the last story is actually the sequel to the memorial tree at the, fir- at the first one. So it's kind of bookended by these two, um, these two stories. And I think one of the, um, one of the things about my writing is that I tend to always kill characters off. I don't know why that is um, probably better to do it in fiction than to do it in fact. Uh, yeah. Um, if it's facts, it'd be able to turn to zero kill ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got to say we'd be having this zoom from a different location um but yeah so I tend to always kill characters off and I just it's one of the um the things that people always ask me it's like who have you killed now 
So I need to get you speaking to Amanda because because uh, I you know I do an informal writing workshop and she's known for even bringing zombies into all of her pieces or killing people off quite graphically. Well, mine aren't too graphic. Like mine's very much. I mean, the short stories and usually the the writing that I do is usually quite reflective um, and nostalgia and things that are quite strong themes. Um, hence the memorial tree kind of sums that up. And um, yeah, I find it quite interesting to see how people and different characters respond to um, memory and how we remember people um, and how actually we can remember people differently, even though they're the same person, because we show different parts of our character to different people in different ways. And I've always found that really interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah, straight away. No, just this. I can get you around that straight away. There's... Is that you're looking at the way the way, the way you look at things is completely different now. Now, in relation to that short storybook, when you first devised it, was it always the plan to do the two pieces as bookends and other stories in the middle of it, or did it change over time? It did actually change because I didn't have the final story to begin with when I started putting them together. Um, so some of the stories have been published in places. So one of the ones uh, called Spring Epithet is one that was actually published in a women's weekly magazine um which was one of my first published stories which was actually i think it was i think it came out in the easter version so i think it would have been 2015 that it came out with my first publication wow wow brilliant so um so that was brilliant and um i think it was just after that i was thinking well i could put these stories um into a collection and, and self-publish it. And it was something that the productivity coach that I mentioned earlier, earlier, she pushed me to do it. She was like, well, why can't you publish it yourself? Just get it out there. I was like, oh, okay. So I just did it. Um, and I thought when I was putting the stories together, I was trying to find a flow, something that kind of, we start with the memorial tree and then where do we go from there? And I, I couldn't figure out which story to put at the end. So I was like, right, I need to write this other story, that this sequel for it that I have in my mind because one of the the lines in the memorial tree references I mean the memorial tree the story is um this woman is planting a tree for a child that she's lost and um basically this woman knows that one day someone will be planting a tree for her so the the end story is that story and um it's what happens um in in the interim I guess so it felt like I had to write that story to end the collection on. So I didn't have that when I first put the stories together. Oh, yeah. That's, I think always as books sometimes, I always believe it. It's great if you get a surprise if your plans change, you're developing it. I think it changes naturally, doesn't it? Straight away yeah. with that. So, yeah, brilliant. Now, obviously since then, recently you've bought out your debut novel, haven't you? So, I have. Now, I've been reading a bit of this this morning. It's very good as well. Now, did you find in that um, your approach to writing a novel was radically different to your short stories? Yes. Short stories is something that I think I started writing very early on. And I absolutely I love writing short stories because it's something that you can finish in one sitting. I'm a very impatient person. So <laughs> writing a novel, um, I think my first the first time I wrote a novel, I think it took me five years of working on it before I even thought about sending it out to agents. And that that one's still sat in a drawer somewhere uh, waiting for its debut. Um, the spy thriller was actually one that came about by accident almost because my my writing group challenged me one one 
um, day to write something outside of my usual genre. So I usually write commercial fiction. Um, I wouldn't quite call it literary fiction, but like reading group fiction and things like that. Um, so I was thinking, right, what, what can I write that's completely different? And spy thrillers seem to be that. So I started writing. I wrote this little bit about a woman who it looks like she's being kidnapped um, but actually she's been brought back into the spy world and she gets taken to a warehouse um, to report to her superior and her superior and is shot basically by this naked assassin he's this guy who's wearing only a trench coat and I kind of finished <laughs> it there and so that was that little uh, that little story and my writing group were like well we need to know who he is. Why is he naked? What's going on? And I think it was it was probably the end of the summer when that happened. And one of the things that I do is every single year in November for National Novel Writing Month, I write a new novel. Oh, <laughs> um, oh, so wow. I take an idea. Um, yeah, so I take an idea and I test it with NaNoWriMo um, to see whether or not it has legs. And I thought, right, well, I'll try writing this spy thriller it wasn't planned. I had no idea what was going to happen next. Um, I didn't know who to trust myself when I wrote it. Um, and I think that comes through the writing. A lot of people have come back to me um, who've read it and said, oh, I couldn't put it down. I just needed to know. And I, I, I didn't see the, the surprises coming. And uh, that's pretty much how I wrote it. So I think I wrote really? it one November. And then um, it's, you know, that was probably 2016 when I first wrote it. Wow. Wow. And then it I've, sat in a drawer for so long. And wow. yeah. I've never had the guts to do that then, the, the National Poetry, uh, National Novel Writing Month one. I do Napoino, National Poetry, yeah. I love it. Every year I do that one. And I effectively, the last couple of years, been writing books on them in a month, all kinds of weird things. But I've never, I never tried a novel out yet, 60,000 words in a month. I couldn't do it. <laughs> you know, I didn't think I could do it to begin with. But I think it does train you into that habit of, sitting down every day and writing something. And I love the fact that because you, it's focusing on the number of words that you're writing, the actual quality of them doesn't matter. And let's face it, we all know that when we write the first draft of something, it's messy, it's not right. And I think there is a lot of, for a lot of new writers, certainly with some of the clients that I work with as the right catalyst, um, that's one of the struggles that they have to get over. And so I found November, the best way to get over that just write completely um, and freely. So, um, so yeah, so I wrote that in 2016. And then I think when I left my job last year, I was like, right, I, I want to put, I want to self-publish a novel, but I didn't feel like any of the commercial novels that I had would, well, I didn't think I could sell them as well because I don't think they're all finished, but with the spy thriller, um, it was something that was fun. It was a good adventure. It was I reread it and I was gripped myself. So I edited it and sent it out into the world and, and hoped people would enjoy it. Yeah, you've had some excellent reviews on that so far as well. If people check it out on your actual Amazon page, it's been going down really, really well. So it's definitely worth worth people checking out out. And so I'm going to say that. I won't say any more there. But like I say, because it looks yeah. like there's going to be a lot of twists in it straight away. Now, I've got to ask you a couple of questions about this book, obviously. And um, we talked about it in pre-recording before. But I notice on the reviews, people are asking, aren't they, is there going to be a sequel? Now, I'll let you answer that and then, then yeah. we'll go next. <laughs> well, I think 
I, I think is, I think part of the reason why people love the, the character that I created in Liz Abbott, you know, she's a, a 40 something ex spy um, that's been out of the spy game for years and gets dragged back in. And it's how she copes with that change. And she is a very much a heroine. And I really, really love her as a character. And it seems like other people do as well. So I will never say never for a sequel. I think there is there's possibly there is another story to tell somewhere in that that I think that you know I've got some ideas of what could happen next for her. Um, but currently in the short term, that's not the plan. The plan is to um, work on my commercial fiction um, and try and get an agent so I can go down the traditional publish route and hopefully um, earn enough money that I can write whatever I want wherever I want and maybe Liz Abbott will come back in that form yeah yeah definitely now people are wondering as well obviously yeah, if you go and look at the book online you'll see it as Catherine Lum but obviously your other name your real your, your right name is Cat Lum so it's yeah. worth explaining to people the differences I think why you're doing that really as we said before yeah, so um, I published this spy thriller under Catherine Lum, which is my full name, which um, is what my dad will tell you is my name. Um, and actually, the, the, the spy thriller is dedicated to my dad because spy thrillers are something that he likes reading. Um, so I published it under my full name because it's not a genre that I intend to continue writing in. If I do write a spy thriller again, it will be because of Liz Abbott, not in another um, story. Um but my other writing, like we said, about my short stories and potentially my commercial fiction novels, they've all got the same themes. They're all looking at things like nostalgia and memory and different sides of characters, which is very different from the, the spy thriller genre. So I wanted to separate sort of the two arms of my writing, I guess, um, out. So I will traditionally publish under Cat Lum, but Catherine Lum is for spy thrillers, I think. Yeah, no, it makes sense. It makes sense for that. It gives people a different direction. Like I said before, like, people obviously know, like, my name's Andy N and I do music and name Ocean the Bottle. Sometimes we think, I both agree, didn't we? It's best to give yourself that distance sometimes between some yeah. things. I agree with you completely with that. Now, last question, or last question one is, and I've hinted at you before we start recording about this, what do you have planned next? Oh, I think one of the things that I have trouble with is... Um, focusing on one plan because I tend to want to do all the things all of the time um, but I'm currently um, re-editing a commercial fiction novel that is currently titled um, Lies that, The Lies That Made Us uh, so again with some of the lies I tend to find lying quite interesting in novels um, and I'm currently working on that so that I can send it out to another round of agents because I've sent it out once already um, and didn't get any acceptances so I'm re-editing it just to really tighten up the plot and the character arcs and that novel is very much about um, a girl a woman Jess who discovers that her boyfriend of six years has been cheating on her with her protege and um, it's not only that he's been cheating but everyone in their workplace has been lying to her because they've known about it um, and it's about how she copes with that betrayal but then also um, how she kind of takes, runs away from that and how she deals with it. Ooh. And yes, somebody does die in that novel. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. To conclude then on this first part, Kat, if people want to find out more about you, of all your various projects and stuff, where are the best going? 
they're probably best going to my website, which is catlum.com. Um, it's currently going through a bit of a revamp, so um, hopefully most of the information is on there. Um, but if you anyone's on Facebook and wants some uh, writing tips and encouragement, you can find me on there under the Write Catalyst as well. I reckon no to that. And obviously, like, um, we know you obviously your I've been to refer to your books been on Amazon, so they can be easily found yep. on Amazon. And yep. you have done a feature for me recently on the Sunday Tribune as well. Are you on Twitter and any other uh, social media? I am on Twitter, well? yeah. Uh, so at cat underscore lum for Twitter. Um, Instagram, I'm on, I don't I post on it very much because I'm very bad at taking photographs that look good. <laughs> um, <laughs> most of the photographs on my phone, I think, are my dog. So um, <laughs> I think people are that interested. But yes, I'm, I'm very active on Twitter. So people can connect with me there as well. Brilliant. Okie dokie. Well, that's all my questions. So we'll let you go and take a deep breath and I'll do the same. <sighs> The main, your main stress is off now, so I'll let you do a bit of reading in part two. So it's been brilliant today, Kat. Thank you for this. So Thank you. Hang around, everybody. We'll see you in a minute. Spoken mate. Hi, guys. Yep, yeah, I'm still here with Kat, and she's going to do a few bits for us now. Over to you, Kat. Okay, so I've um, got two uh, pieces to read for you today. The first one is from my short story collection, The Memorial Tree. Um, it's a very short one. Some of the, the stories there are flash fiction, probably. Um, but it's one of my favourites, and it's called Red Roses and Painted Nails. On their anniversary, he always bought her a dozen red roses. But each year, they ended up in the stream behind their cottage, bobbing in the water like thorny life rafts. It wasn't that he forgot. It was simply a tradition he could not break. Red roses were meant for anniversaries. She had always preferred tulips anyway. Her nail polish collection was stashed beneath their bed, ordered neatly in their plastic boxes by colour and make. They used to joke about it at dinner parties, how she had enough polish to paint their house with, and then some. Other people would laugh. She would smile and nod, her head bowed in humour, but her eyes rolled back in derision. It was her thing. Every day she would have different coloured nails, sometimes even an effect or two that would make the girls in the office marvel over her skill. It was this that had drawn him to her in the first place. Her confident quirks made her stand out. He admired the delicate attention of her painted nails. It was what defined her, marked her out, made her desirable. He hadn't really known how much that desirability cost, both in terms of finance and space, until they had moved in together. She wanted the entire box room to display the tiny bottles of colour as if in a museum, but he had stood firm. Now he wondered what might have happened if he'd acquiesced. Still, each year on their anniversary, he would bring home the roses and place them on the table for her to find. Then, as was his custom, he would clamber up the pokey stairs to their bedroom and choose a bottle from the collection. Slowly unscrewing the cap, he would savour the moment when the liquid broke the seal formed over in the intervening months and he would breathe it in. The smell brought back so many memories. It was the aroma of who she was, who she had been. Sometimes a tear would work its way from his eye and stay in his face at the overwhelming nostalgia of that smell. It built up inside of him until he could take it no longer and he would close up the polish until next year when he would choose another colour to mark this day. By the time he got downstairs, the roses would already be gone. He would follow the trail of torn petals and the occasional thorn-spiked blood droplet down the garden path 
and to the edge of the stream where she would be waiting. Every year, she tossed the roses into the rapid water, and as she did this, she would always be crying. Who brought the roses, she would ask. I don't like roses. They remind me too much of my husband. She would break down then and crumple into his arms. Oh, where is my husband? I thought he was home when I saw the roses, but he wasn't. He isn't here. Where is he? He would remind himself of the tear already shed in his moment with the polish, and he would pull her close and breathe in her smell, the one that wasn't really hers because she no longer remembered that she ever painted her nails. I'm here, he would whisper, but she wouldn't remember him. Still, he couldn't help but buy those roses. Beautiful, beautiful Thank piece. You. Really, I thought really. I'd read you one in which someone didn't quite die, but um, <laughs> yeah, you're just, so you're just trying, to, trying to fox everybody there, basically. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, I found it really interesting. One of my old bosses used to collect nail polish, and she kind of inspired that story. Um, but yeah, that's so that's kind of you see the the style that I go for with the memorial tree. It's very much about memory and nostalgia and how people deal with it, which is very different from the spy thriller um, that I write. Yeah, which I'm looking forward to hearing next. I know you're doing a bit of that for this next, aren't you? So, yeah. So, okay. Do you want to set the context of this then, obviously, because we're going to jump into a novel, aren't we? So. Yes. So this is a very different style of writing, I think. Um, as I said um, earlier, it was based on a, a writing sample um, from my writing group about the naked assassin. Um, I'm not going to read that bit, which is usually the bit I read. I've decided to read a little something a little bit different um, that kind of fits in with today. Um, so I'm going to read a little different part. But yeah, so this is the the spy thriller, I guess. Um, so the what's happened is that our character Liz has been kidnapped from work to report to her superior because her spy altar has been reactivated but she doesn't know what's going on. Um, so she's escaped and she goes back to a farmhouse where she used to do some undercover work. And that's kind of that sets the context um, for her ex-lover who she was undercover with um, coming back to get her. So this is very early on in the novel, but it gives you some context. So I will read that. She could see the turn for the farmhouse on her right. The tall oak tree that marked the spot still stood next to it, with the leaves just beginning to turn autumnal. When she turned the car up the long sweeping driveway, loose stone crunched under the wheels, and it almost felt like coming home. The house was perched on the side of an incline, allowing her to view the entire structure along with the courtyard at the entrance. It looked empty. In fact, as she drew closer, she noted one of the windows on the upper floor was broken and a tireless tractor stood on blocks next to the building. She pushed down the relaxed feeling that flooded over her. Reaching the courtyard, she slammed on the brakes and a choked wheezing accompanied it. Liz thought for a second she damaged the car until the sound repeated and she realized it was her. She clamped a hand over her mouth to try and prevent any further emotion from escaping, but it was all too much. The men in the warehouse, the shooting, Harley, and then the fact that she was back here at this farmhouse after so long. She covered her face and sobbed into her palms, letting the fear and confusion leak out of her. Ten years ago, this was the place he had brought to meet her mother. It was a surprising development, one that she hadn't predicted on account of the file the agency had memorised her, made no mention that his mother was still alive, 
nor that he had a relationship with her. She was senile and part blind already and believed her young boy was simply a businessman who travelled a lot. It was heartbreaking to watch as she fussed over him. It was the first time Liz had witnessed his tender side outside of their own relationship, which had shocked her enough given his background. But the way he was with his mother was kind, thoughtful and caring. A whole other side to the man in the file that she hadn't expected. This was, of course, her first mistake, seeing him as a son instead of a criminal. But she made so many more over the four years she spent with him, observing, listening, gathering evidence. She let herself drop her guard at the farmhouse, playing the part of dutiful daughter-in-law as though they really were married and they had a real connection. That was her biggest mistake in the end, forgetting she was playing a role and falling for her own lies. After two minutes of painful reminiscing, she sniffed back any remaining tears, wiped her face and checked the gun that she'd gotten from Harley. It was a tactic she'd perfected long ago after the death of her parents, when she learned to hide her grief in private moments so she could be strong for Julie. Now the practical art of examining the gun calmed her. She wondered how long she had been, she wondered how long she had before whoever it was caught, caught up to her. She didn't have time to panic anymore. She hadn't really had time for those two minutes, but ordinary life had changed her. She wasn't able to compartmentalize as well as she used to. Another example of how soft she'd become. Momentarily, she considered how the staff from the corporate office might think of her if they could see her now. Still the sharp, straight-laced PA who always made tea and remembered her colleagues' birthdays. It occurred to her that once again she had started to believe the cover she'd created for herself. Except, wasn't that supposed to be her real life away from the agency? She rolled her eyes. Those questions were for later. Feeling well-armed with both Harley's gun and that of the naked stranger, she stepped out of the car and did a quick perimeter check, once again cursing her choice of footwear as they sank into the soft ground. The window boxes were on the stills, though their bouquets had long since perished. She was surprised to recognise the curtains still hanging in the front room, which were half closed. She peered inside. It was dark, but she could just make out an old sofa, the same flocked one that she used to lie out on, and the shelving in the alcoves. It seemed like the farmhouse had been abandoned ever since. A memory started to cloud her mind. No, she wasn't ready to think of that yet. She couldn't risk getting caught up in those times. It had taken her far too long to purge them from her system six years ago. She focused instead on getting into the house and setting up a defensive position. She doubted she had long before the enemy, if that's who they were, arrived. Trying the door, whose handle turned with a creak, she contemplated who might be after her and for what reason. She'd made a number of enemies during her time at the agency, but the majority of those were either dead or incapable of action. Why had she been recalled? Perhaps she hadn't. Perhaps this could all be an elaborate trap. Her thoughts meandered as she methodically checked the house room by room to ensure she was alone. Dust covered many of the surfaces. Some furniture was hidden beneath sheets that had yellowed over time. On a hunch, she eased open the door under the stairs. There, lined up neatly beneath a white wax jacket on a coat hook, were her old black boots. They were dusty, but still serviceable, and she kicked off the heels and pulled them on, grateful for the thick socks still stuffed inside them. An easy conclusion that the farmhouse had certainly been, been abandoned then, until she stepped into the kitchen. Then she had to reassess. 
The kitchen was spotless. Surfaces were clean, cookware sparkled on the hob and a pot of daisies sat on the table which was set for breakfast. Dry toast stacked neatly in a holder. Her stomach flipped. Her hand trembled and she fumbled with the gun. The sound of it clattering against the tiled floor echoed around the building and made her jump. For a moment, everything went black and all her limbs tingled with pins and needles. She blinked to try and convince herself that this was a dream, a recollection instead of a reality. But when her eyes opened, it was all still there, including the chessboard placed carefully between the cutlery, pieces suspended mid-game. A note lay beside the board, and before Liz fainted with the weight of the knowledge of what must have happened, she saw only one word. Checkmate. What, what a tease at the end there. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the original name for the novel was Checkmate, um, but we changed it along the way. Yeah, because I can sometimes it's best for you to change name, it changes naturally. But yeah, the way you finished up though, it's a great way, did it, great way of teasing for what happens next. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's pretty much how every chapter goes, I think. Um, so that's good writing that then. Because, um, quick question for you if you finish your day then is that, in your opinion, a good way of writing novels where you leave a tease at the end of it? I think really... certainly for something like a spy thriller where you do want people to be on the edge of their seat. Um, and you, you know, you do want that unputdownable feeling, which I'm very grateful that you know the reviewers and the readers that have mentioned um, that it is unputdownable and they don't know who to trust, and they're kind of going on this journey with Liz about what's going on, what's happening. Um, and you know, I think we said in the pre-recorded that I was quite surprised by the fact that it ended up in the espionage thrillers bestseller list. Uh, number 16 when it was released. Yes, I'm glad you reminded me of that. We should have mentioned that before. Yeah. <laughs> Is that listen um, now? Bear that in mind. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so when it first, and I didn't expect it to do that well, to be honest. You know, there are millions of books on Amazon. Um, and to get into the best selling list for espionage thrillers was, a, was something that I just didn't expect. So, yeah, thank you to all the readers and the people who bought it. It's, it's been a great journey. Make sure you check her out, guys and girls. Well, thank you again today, Kat. It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed this today. Thank you. So, that, Me too. As, as Don Callis says, guys and girls, stay safe, stay over. We'll see you all soon. Spoken, mate.